First Timothy chapter two. Um, so we've been just, we just been wrestling with this. This, and I guess you know I, I got a feeling that 150 years now, well, well, not us, but those who follow us, they'll be having series on this still. Um, and it's always okay to go back and evaluating what does the Bible say well, and, and, and looking at here's what we practice, here's what we believe, but wait a minute, what does Scripture say? So I don't have a problem re- repeating something. I think it's good for me to look at my life, look at the church that I'm a part of, and line it up with Scripture and say, hey, wait a minute. Because that's what the restoration movement's all about. It should never stop being a movement where we are evaluating and assessing who we are, what we believe, what we practice individually and collectively and comparing it to Scripture. And um, so I have no apologies for that. And so because this topic of women's role is such a sensitive, debated, continues to be controversial issue in this church, in churches, and even in our culture, uh, because we see that, um, what does the Bible say? Now, we don't have time to do this. The purpose of this series was not to do an exhaustive study on women, period, Genesis to Revelation, which might be interesting. Uh, it was primarily just to look at what happens when we're gathered together as an assembly, primarily to look at the two passages in 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, those two passages that give those restrictions, those prohibitions to women, seem to at least in some way. And when you look at those, and um, you might reach the conclusion, we are in our practice at Eastside in violation of those passages. Um, and so we need to go back and take a good look at those and... Um, and so we, we looked at the 1 Corinthians 11, we looked in 1 Corinthians um, 14, and tonight we are continuing. Last week we, we took a peek, not a peek, we took an exhaustive look at all of 1 Timothy. And I just want to say this, and I know I repeat myself um, from time to time, um, but one of the things that's very helpful, I think, in reading the Bible, and especially in these, these, um, these letters these epistles is to understand that the writer and specifically our writer that we're attentive to is Paul because he wrote the two letters we're looking at. I don't think there's one letter where Paul was just bored and had nothing to do and thought, I'm going to write these guys a letter or um, I, I think they need to understand this. There were, there were almost in every single letter there, were, there was a problem. There were problems and there were, or they, the scholars that, that write commentaries called them, there were occasions, occasions that prompted God to say to one of the writers, okay, we need to fix those problems. And so it, it, it's encouraging to me to know that if we got problems here at Eastside, uh, the churches here um, in, the, uh, in the first century did as well. And so uh, in every letter, I don't know, there's, not, there's not one letter that you can name me. I'm pretty sure I'm right with that. That it was just a random letter, but it was, there's something going on, there's something wrong, I'm going to write about it, and here's the solution. And so the way you interpret these letters is, it's really good to say, okay, let's, let's figure out what was the problem, first of all. And once I understand the problem, you have to read it through from beginning to end. What is the historical situation, the historical context that identifies the problem? I'm writing down little phrases and thoughts and comments that kind of identify that, and you summarize that. We did that last week. And then, okay, based upon that problem, what does he say as the solution and this is important because before we try to figure out um, what it means for us it's extremely important that we understand what it meant for them because I think it's extremely mistaken to reach a conclusion of what it means for us if it didn't have that original uh, intended meaning for its first recipients it's a mistake for it to say for us what it didn't mean to say to them so let's figure it out to them and then we go okay now how does that apply to us and so that's what we're doing in first timothy um looking at uh the the context and and the mistake is take these verses out look at them alone and you could just do all kinds of crazy stuff with scriptures like that. And we, we used some examples a couple of weeks ago about that. Now, now, what I did do last week, and I did it probably out of proper order, but that's just the way I did it. And so that's what we did. Um, as we were looking at this passage that just is crystal clear in verse 11 in chapter 2, a woman should learn in quietness 
um, that word quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. It's like, why waste time? It's really clear. No talking. Be silent. But then we ask the question, oh, wait, wait a minute. Is it that clear? Is it that clear? What do we mean? And that, what do we mean by silent? And that's why I entitled this class, The Sound of Silence. Um, and so last week, just for the sake of review, we, I shared with you that I think there's two places you go to for um, an understanding of a word. First of all, you can go to a dictionary. Or if we, were look, if we were talking in the Greek terminology, we would call it a lexicon. Because oftentimes a word has more than one meaning. And the mistake is, I've got this meaning and it has that meaning in every context. Oh, that is, that is absolutely mistaken. And so in, in the word silent, um, it can mean quiet. It can mean tranquil. It can mean peaceable. Or peaceful. Do you know the difference between peaceable and peaceful? I didn't until today. I kept seeing that coming up and when I was reading peaceable and peaceful. Peaceful re- relates to anything. A, a person, place, or object. Peaceable, I think, it can only apply to a person. I think that's the way I understood it. So when I say be silent, I might just be saying be peaceful, be peaceable, um, be tranquil. It can, it can be translated as, as settle down, be at peace. Or it can be translated as, this is a time not to be talking. Um, so, that's the dictionary, okay? Um, but then you go and you look at um, its usage elsewhere. So, we went to the Old Testament and New Testament. Well, how is that word used elsewhere in Scripture? Is it always used just like this every single time? Then I'm going to be pretty strict about its usage, more than likely, wherever I'm studying at the time. But when I go to that word... Almost every single time that it's used in the Old Testament, which would be the Greek Septuagint, as it was translated from Hebrew a couple hundred years before Christ. So that makes it pretty authoritative for me because it was quoted in the New Testament. That word used in the Old Testament is, is never translated, don't you say a word, it's translated as uh, and understood to be to be at rest, to be peaceful. To be a person of rest and peace. To not be a fighter. Um, to be contrite in spirit. To be a peaceful people. Um, it, we, we see in the New Testament, in, in uh, what is Second Thessalonians, is translated as to settle down. That means quit talking completely and never talk. It means settle down. Um, it means to have a gentle and quiet spirit. Did I say it means to be contrite in spirit? Um, and so, as I shared with you last week, it's kind of like the word run. If I say the word run, I shared this with you last week. Well, everybody knows what that means. Why talk about it? No, we don't all know what that means. It has multiple meanings based upon its usage in the context. If you're talking about pantyhose, it means one thing. If you talk about a nose, about a faucet, about political race. If you talk about a car, if you talk about my feet. Um, so when I say the word run, you can't just snap. Oh, everybody knows what that means. Of course. No, wait a minute. What's the context? And so when we say, she must be silent, well, I mean, duh. Well, no, it's not necessarily duh. Um, what, how does the context define that? We, we do that. Um, but then the problem is, once we already know what we believe, we find ourselves unwilling to see it any differently than what we already believe. I do that. We all struggle to do that, to carry to the text. It means this because that's what we've practiced all these years. So... That's the definition of that word in its context and its usage. And so um, then what we did last week, we also, and I did it really quickly. And maybe that was a mistake. We just, uh, we didn't have time to read all of First Timothy. I said, now, now what we want to do, now that we've got an idea of how that word could have various meanings, let's see how it fits in the context. And so you start out, what, at least what I do, is I start out with a broader context, the bigger picture. And it's kind of like, I love these maps, you know. I'm looking on a map, I don't know where I am, and I click that little plus, and it, and it broadens out. And when I see the big picture, all of a sudden, oh, I know exactly where that is. And then I zoom in to get a better idea. So, so we zoom out of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, she must be silent. And I look at the larger context of the letter of 1 Timothy. And I find out that, oh, he was addressing some, uh, some serious problems in the church in Ephesus 
which is, was a beautiful church we read in the book of Ephesians, having some problems. Somebody said last week, but eventually they lost their first love, we see in the later years. Um, so he was, he was, there were all kinds of problems. And so, so we, uh, I picked selected verses. The, the, your better choice is to read the whole letter. We didn't do that. I just said, look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this. You look at all these different statements that give historical clues as to what was going on in the church. And then you put all those together in a summary form and say, this is what was happening in Ephesus as far as I can tell. So here <clears throat> is the summary. You understand what we're doing? We got this problematic passage but I want to understand it in a larger context. What was going on? What was he dealing with? And probably what will happen is when you see this, you go, oh, I get that. When we zoom in in a minute. Here's the uh, occasion, the summary as we'd call it. There were individuals in the church in Ephesus. And it's very clear it wasn't just men. It was also women. And by their teaching, by their behavior... And by their arrogance, a lot of arrogance in this church, they were causing controversies. They were causing disputes. It was leading to division. And it was leading people astray. And what's really interesting, when we saw this in chapter 6, some of this arrogance was connected to wealth. There were those in the church that were boasting and bragging about their wealth identifying and connecting their display of wealth as an example of godliness. And we see that on, on, in churches today, in television today, some of this health, wealth, and prosperity stuff. What you've got and your blessings and your success is a sign of God's blessings and your godliness. And so that was at play in the city, in the church, in Ephesus. And I'm going to guess... As we look tonight in chapter 2, as he's making a correction with these women and the way that they were dressing and their fine adornment and their hair and their, uh, and their jewelry and their pearls, that it could have been this fashion show of godliness through this display of wealth and what they were wearing. That possibly is it because that was in the larger context of the letter. Uh, maybe that's why he talks about that. Now, so, so we, got, we got in chapter 2, he's correcting women for something. And what we notice is, not only were there women and men teaching and acting in such a way that was causing controversies and conflicts and teaching false things, teaching things they had no clue um, about what they were teaching. But we found out in chapter 5 that Paul didn't just randomly say, okay, now let's talk about how to take care of widows. The reason Paul said, let's stop now and talk about how to take care of widows is because there were some widows that were making, causing problems in the church. And so he says, if we're going to take, we need to take care of the widows like this, but he starts speaking about younger widows. And evidently, and it's plural there, there were some widows um, who had become busybodies. That's the word that he uses. And he says they were talking nonsense. They were spreading slander. He says they're saying things they ought not to say. So we have some problematic men and women in the church. Some of them are, are widows who are going from house to house or in the assembly or in their teaching. And, um, and, and, and possibly, sadly, one of the reasons why some of these women were teaching things that they had no clue what they were teaching because of... Sad, but there was a restriction on, on, on a woman's um, access in this day to education. Uh, now, here's, here's a frightening thing about it all that Paul tells us in chapter 4 and in chapter 5 that this wasn't just what was happening among the people in the church, but behind the root of it all, he tells us, there were demonic spirits at work teaching and influencing can you imagine that? In the church, teaching and influencing others in the church through individuals. So some of these individuals, some of these widows, Paul says, had, were being used by Satan. They had fallen prey to Satan to be influences of his to others. So that's going on in um, the church in Ephesus um, and so as a result of these controversies and the conflicts, they were losing members. 
Not necessarily that their attendance was going down. Maybe it was, but they were losing their faith. There were people that were wandering astray. I thought they were losing their members because he actually named some of them. And sadly, because they were getting so caught up in all of these issues, um, they were losing sight of their primary mission of making disciples, of sharing the gospel to the world. That had all, just you get the feeling that had come to a standstill. That, they, that had gotten lost in the midst of this. <clears throat> so that is First Timothy. That's what was going on in that dear church. And God said, oh my, we've got to help them. And so the Holy Spirit through Paul wrote this letter. And Paul, as we know, in his travels, he left Timothy in Ephesus, he left Titus in Crete. And uh, you can see now why he left him in Ephesus. I don't want to deal with that. Um, that's the larger context. Now let's do this. Let's click on the little minus button. I think that's where we zoom in. And we're going to go to chapter 2. And we're just going to take a peek. We're going to look at the more what I call larger context. We just looked at, at the immediate context. I just want us to walk through chapter 2 tonight as far as we can go. We may finish it. We may not. So um, you can ask questions along the way. I will. And I would appreciate it if you participate with me. Um, but do feel free to interrupt. So I just explained hopefully the larger historical context uh, into which we find our little passage that's given us so much trouble or questions. So now let's look at it in its smaller context of the chapter in which it is found. Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, I urge then, first of all, let me just stop there for a minute. <clears throat> I think grammatically it's quite clear, even in the English, but it certainly is in the Greek, that when he says, I urge then, first of all, that that is a bridge to what he was just saying. I urge, and it's like I'm talking, talking, talking. Okay, therefore, because of that, I'm going to tell you this now. Because of the controversies caused by the teachers teaching and things they ought not to teach, because of the conflicts that are being stirred up in the church, I urge then. What he's saying in chapter 2 is a response to the problems he identified in chapter 1. And he says, first of all, now I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 and I'm going to ask you two questions. The first one is, is very simple. The second one is not too complicated, but, it, but it's really got a powerful, two powerful points there, okay? Based upon the conflicts and the controversies that were occurring in the church caused by men and caused by a good number of women, what does he tell them as a solution? This is what you need to do about that. Notice what he says, okay? Chapter 2, verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that request, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all men the testimony given in its proper time and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle I am telling the truth I am not lying you wonder why he had to emphasize that maybe some were questioning it I'm telling the truth I'm not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles we got a church in trouble we got people causing division and controversy and quarreling and teaching things they shouldn't teach. We got busybodies stirring things up. And Paul says, okay, first of all, what you really need to do is what? Pray. Now that one wasn't complicated. Um, you need to be a people of prayer. Now, which leads me to believe had they lost sight of that? Had prayer become somewhere lost in the midst of all of this? When I tell somebody they need to do something, is that just a random comment? Or is it something I see that's lacking? Was prayer lacking? And so he tells them to pray. That one's, not, not, that one's extremely easy. Now the question is, why does he tell them to pray? How is prayer 
going to help this? And he gives two answers that I think. How does prayer? He says, I want you to pray because, and what's the answer? He's calling everyone to pray. Okay, I need you to pray. So he's calling them to pray. To each, to each other? For each other. Okay. To God. Yes, Ginger? That's right. And so he's calling them. He's calling them. Let's quit fighting and splitting. That's right. Come together. I want you to pray. Okay. Because you see, when you pray, how's that going to help? Okay, it gets your focus. How do you see that in that passage? Well, he narrows it down to so that you can have a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So he's trying to get them to focus on their behavior. Okay, so notice it's, it's, the topic is peace, being peaceful. Well, why would he be talking about that? Because there were anything. But that. So remember, this word about women being silent can also be translated peaceful. That's the point he's making here. You need to be prayerful, first of all, because prayer creates and sets the stage for peaceful and quiet lives in contrast to what's going on right now in this church. That's what he's telling them. Um, now, he tells them to pray for whom? For everyone. And then he goes into the governmental authorities. And when you pray for them. So that you'll have peace. So, so my question is. Does that mean pray for all our governmental authorities. So that the way they lead will lead in such a way. That things will be peaceful in our world. Or pray. So that regardless of what happens out there in the world. We will, within the church, in our own lives, be people who are at peace. Which is it? Both? I'm kind of inclined to think so, too. Uh, um, there, there is a beautiful promise in Philippians chapter 4. Don't be anxious about anything. There was so much anxiety in the church in Ephesus. And maybe there was anxiety. It was in the community in the government authorities that was spilling over in the church. And there's a promise that instead of just getting all crazy about your anxieties. I'll tell you what. You pray. And I promise you I will give you a peace that transcends all understanding. There's something about when God's people pray. That's a difference maker. And here I think he's saying instead of being a place of arguments and quarrels and bickering. Let church be a place of prayer because I think it's true. It's, I find it much harder to fight with someone when I'm praying with them. I find it hard to hold animosity against someone when I'm lifting them up in prayer. Jesus says pray for our enemies. It may not change the enemy, but it's going to change the way I feel about them. Because it's hard for me to dislike them when I'm trying, asking God to, to help them. So he says... Um, let, let's keep focusing our prayer. That's going to create a peaceful and quiet lives in contrast to the fighting and bickering. So I wrote this question. What would the relationships in our church be like if we spent more time praying together? And the purpose of it is for peace. Now, that's not the only thing. Prayer also does a second thing. What's the second thing he said? You, I think, and Kay alluded to it, but you guys didn't hear it. So I'm going to give you a chance to try to see Gives, sorry? Gives wisdom? Okay. And, and, and how do you see that here? I should have asked you further. Because it definitely does. It's, it's definitely, biblically speaking, you pray for wisdom. That's true. In verses, it leads to quiet and peaceful lives. And it also gives us wisdom in how to behave with one another. You could certainly say that. But prayer accomplishes the second thing. Notice this. Prayer keeps us from losing sight of the core of our faith and of our mission. Because notice, he says, I want you to pray. I want everybody to pray for two reasons. First of all, so that we will be a people of peaceful and quiet lives. But then secondly, he says, this is good and pleases God who wants all 
men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And now he proclaims the gospel for there is one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom um, for all men, the testimony given at its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Pray and be focused. Prayer keeps us focused on people coming to a knowledge of the truth of Jesus as Savior. These are things, Paul says, about who God is and what God wants us to be doing that are important. This is important. Don't lose sight of that. When you're praying, it keeps your focus on what is important. And Paul says, this is my, for this purpose, I'm doing this. He said, this is my purpose, and it's supposed to be your purpose as well. Um, and so prayer keeps our eyes and our minds and our perspective focused on what God has called us to be doing so that we don't get sidetracked by the quarrels and the disputes. It gives us peace. I'll give you an example of that. Um, yeah, it's something how there will be things you remember. When I was in college, I was preparing to go on the mission field and I read a book by a missionary named James Jim Woodruff who was a missionary in New Zealand and he wrote a book called Struggles of the Kingdom about his experience in New Zealand. And um, he said he said that he gave the illustration of all these problems and conflicts come up and you're always dealing with problems and conflicts to the point that you just don't have time to do what you originally came there to do. And he says it's kind of like when you're plowing a field there, there are rats in the field and you stop plowing because you've got to deal with that rat. And then you've got to deal with that rat. And then you've got to deal with that rat. And sure, rats, so you've got to deal with them. But he says, never stop plowing. Don't lose sight of, 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 of your plowing because that's what you're supposed to be doing. And so, not that the rats don't need to be dealt with or taken care of. Sure, there are problems within the church. But never let them cause you to lose sight of, of, of your primary mission and your primary focus. Um, I think whatever issues we struggle with are important, but it, it, it seems to me as though there are some people who some of these issues have become their main issues, become their gospel, instead of sharing and proclaiming and evangelizing and making Christ known to the world. They're not doing that because their gospel has become some of these controversial topics upon which they stand and, and constantly or, or hammering. Not that these aren't important things to talk about. Um, so isn't this interesting? Isn't this interesting? Look at this. It is crystal clear from chapter 1 to chapter 6. There are internal problems in the church. And Paul says, the way I want you to solve this is, is to be prayerful and get your focus external. We got problems in the church, and I want you to pray for those in governmental positions. And I want you to be thinking about and focusing on the lost so that they'll come to a knowledge of the truth. That's my purpose. That needs to be your purpose. Why is it when you've got problems in the church, instead of looking at the problems in the church here, he first of all says you need to focus outward in prayer. How does that help? You're shaking your head. You don't know. Okay, that's a nice, honest answer. Um, Gets you out of yourself. You realize who the enemy is? Yeah, that is stopping us from our mission. Focusing on our mission to the world, I would suggest, goes a long way in keeping us from internal conflicts. And let me give you an example. One of the best things in the church in Baton Rouge, in my 28 years working there, one of the best things I ever saw happen in that church is one of the worst things that ever happened in southern Louisiana was Hurricane Katrina. It was horrible. But from the day that hurricane hit, for the next year to year and a half, two years, our church unified and came together because we had something really important. We had a mission all of the problems that we'd been having in the church, they didn't necessarily disappear, but it was like, there's people on the street don't have a place to sleep right now. And so we stopped and we got focused on that. We, we, we established a, a base camp in New Orleans 
to give people water and food and supplies. We established a secondary base camp in Baton Rouge to give people a place to sleep. And we had people coming together, working side by side. And what this external focus did, it made a difference on our church internally. So there were these internal problems in the church in Ephesus. And Paul says, don't let that distract you from your external focus of praying for these people and praying they come to a knowledge of the truth. For in doing so and keeping your focus there, it's, you're going to find healing within as well. Um, I'll always remember one of our church leaders in Baton Rouge. We were in discussions about um, church planting. We're going to plant a church. And this church leader said... We're not ready because we've got these problems in the church we first need to deal with. Well, could it be we have, we're not ready and we have these problems in the church that we need to deal with is because we're too internally focused? Could it be if we were church planting that would help bring about a resolution to the very problems we have internally? Um, I, I believe in evangelistic focus and relentless pursuit of our mission externally does a lot to guide a church with peace and unity internally um, so th- I think that's what we see here in chapter 2 the, the theme is peace okay uh, so verse 8 any comments or questions verse 8 yes Bill I think when you sit there and say to pray for the people in authority I mean obviously you're in Ephesus I mean it's a Roman yeah. Romans pretty much really care for you, like you, killing you, martyring you. And here he says, I want you to pray for them. Yeah. It really has to mess with your mind. Or at least to make you start, you know, focusing more. You would have to kind of be more like Jesus. Yeah. To want to pray for that person. And, you know, with all the evil things that they did. Yeah. And your prayers. For them, it may never change them, but it'll change you. <laughs> and uh, Benita, it may change them, it may, but. I think for me, it's real important to know what the scripture says today with Thanksgiving and even this part of intercession and Thanksgiving to be made for all people because I really can be praying to God and I can be complaining to Him about people. Yeah. Instead of the discipline of being thankful for that person. Yeah, so, so that's the same thing in Philippians 4. You've got all these anxieties. He's not saying deny them, ignore them, pretend like they're not there. He says, pray about those anxieties, and then he says, with thanksgiving. And all of a sudden you think, oh yeah, there are a lot of things to be thankful for. And all of a sudden your eyes get lifted above your troubles, and you say, oh, there are multiple blessings. Yeah, thanksgiving is a, is a therapeutic part of prayer. I think that part of having thanksgiving in prayer for an individual I'm in conflict with will bring more peace. To you. Because, to me, yeah. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm being thankful for Try, Try it. Somebody that's getting on your nerves and making your life difficult, start praying for them. Start, start thanking God for them and asking Him to bless them. And, and they may never change, but it'll change your heart. And it changed your heart, it'll change your behavior, and as your behavior changes, that may individually that may end up changing them in your interaction with them. Who knows? And I, I have seen that. I have seen mission points um, fighting over the issues, fighting over the issues to the divide, the divide, the divide, the divide. There is a town where Karen's mother lives in Northern Ireland in Bangor. There are three or four churches of Christ. There's four or five of them there, 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 and four different churches. They can't get along because it's been just fighting over these issues. They've lost sight of their mission. I wonder what would happen if they just said, you know what, let's just pray together. <laughs> um, yes? One thing I just thought just struck me that because what he taught, the first thing he talks about other than praying for all people, specifically mentioning kings and all their opposition, could it possibly be that in this context, part of the disruption and the quarreling and all of the stuff that was going on in the church was that they were arguing about what was going on out there. 
Yeah, could it be what was going on on the outside was part of the cause of the quarrels on the inside? Certainly our struggle right now. <laughs> the political arena, the pandemic arena, the racial arena has caused conflicts with members within the church family. Certainly this family, in my observation, would say. Um, so could it be spilling over or could it be that's what... It could be because you wonder, why does he say, you guys are fighting and not get along, pray for your king. But it's just external focus, yeah. Verse 8, alone, let's look at it. Now, here's where I believe he's not talking about mankind. I believe he's speaking to males, okay? He's going to talk to men and now he's going to talk to women. I want men everywhere to lift up hands in prayer without anger or disputing. And so we, we're hitting prayer again. Um, what's he telling them? In the midst of all of this, bickering and fighting and division and false teaching, and he says, man, I, I need you to pray um, without anger or disputing, which leads you to believe there probably was anger and disputing. And if you don't know that, then reads the rest of the letter and say, oh yeah, of course there was. That, that is crystal clear. Um, you need to be praying together. Again, what a difference that makes when God's people are praying together. Um, so notice, okay, that we hadn't even gotten to the women need to be silent, which can be translated multiple ways, settled down and peaceful. The whole theme is constantly, the stage is, or if you want to call it, peaceful and quiet. Let's get along. Let's settle down. Okay? Now, uh, it's just hard to fight with someone if you're praying with them. Then he says, but, but here's what's interesting. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. Okay, now, am I to translate that? No, not translate that. Am I to interpret that literally or figuratively? Both? Both of them are okay, yes. So if I interpret that figuratively, what do I mean? Okay, so it's a, lifting up hands would be a symbolic expression of examination. Um, I think it's just a, I wrote down a symbolic prayer, uh, symbolic of praying together in harmony and not fighting. So maybe instead of this, maybe this. What, literally, what is the purpose? The Bible talks a lot about lifting hands in prayer. What's the purpose of that? Why, why is that? Indicates surrender. I think, I, think, I think there's multiple meanings. One of them is surrender. Yeah, so there's another thing. It's, if I'm surrendering to God, how am I going to keep fighting with you? It indicates surrender. Lifting up hands. What else? Openness. Openness. Yeah. I, I pray, I pray regularly and always on Sundays a prayer with my hands lifted saying three things God first of all it's offering me here I am I'm giving you this person so that's one offering secondly is and I'm I'm wide open like a funnel fill me up and then thirdly the lifting of my hands it's not it's not this that I want today it's this it's, it's, it's a direction to you, God. It's to your glory. It's a focus on you. And so my eyes are lifted off of Mike, who's getting on my nerves. And I'm lifting my hands and focusing not on this conflict, but on this. And it brings peace here, likely. But there's a lifting of hands. And so um, it's a beautiful posture of prayer. Mike and I actually get along, just in case. Um, so here's, here's the reason I bring that up. First of all, it's, it's beautiful to talk about prayer. But you need to understand, this is, 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 is in the verb, grammar of this verb. It is an imperative. 
Okay? You understand an imperative? It's a command. God in the Bible commands us by the Holy Spirit to lift men. Excuse me, women, you're, you're free of this. If we're going to be literal with it, he commands men to lift their hands in prayer. Are we obedient to that command in this church or disobedient? Some yes, some no. <laughs> Richard? Okay, your Bible has a cross reference, Psalm 141, 2. Yeah, may my prayers be set before you like incense, the lifting of my hands like an evening sacrifice. And so that is, that is the, a direction, sounds like to me, a directional thing. I'm burning incense, the smoke of those incense. I, uh, or a, I love that in Leviticus, those sacrificial offerings. The smoke of those offerings were rising to God. It was a pleasing aroma. My, my, may my prayers be a prayerful offering to you like the incense. And so it's like, and I love that in Leviticus 1, 1 through 6. All those sacrifices were smoke going up. And, and so when God looks upon the east side, is it, or is it, <sighs> prayers or that, that aroma. Revelation has that same vision that those prayers lifted up were incense that were rising before God. God says, I hear your prayers, the saints. That's a beautiful, beautiful passage. Um, do we interpret and practice that literally or figuratively? A little bit of both, you said. Richard? That's a great question. It, it, the holy kiss is a command, right? So we don't, do we interpret that literally or physically? You dodge that question with another question. You're just like Jesus. I'm teaching that Sunday. <laughs> you just turn that around on me. Why don't you, Richard? That's a good question. In general. In general. Well, that's, that's a really good question. Because if this is or isn't, then it's going to influence how we may look at this woman's passage later. It's a good question, Carl. You don't have to lift up holy hands if you're in official worship service. Let's get to this right here, right, Keith? You just read what Keith gave me. Do you kind of understand where I'm going with this in the sense of we don't command obedience to men in this assembly or even in your homes that you must lift up your hands even though it's an imperative command given in Scripture because we don't say, well, you're supposed to interpret that literally. We conclude, we're talking figuratively. That's where we go with this. At least we do in practice, right? Am I right? Because you understand why I'm asking that. Because uh, I'm, I'm saying, here we say, oh no, we're not mean you have to lift your hands. What we mean was we need to get along, we need to direct ourselves to God, we mean this, we mean this. We take that figuratively. Three verses later, we're going to say, women, be silent. That means literally close your mouth, don't speak. Are we consistent in our interpretation? I guess is what I'm getting at. Why is it over here? Yeah, I know what it says, I know it's a command, but what you need to understand, over here it's a command, why are we even talking about it? See, we're going to, you're going to see this. You're going to see this, this, you could call it hermeneutics, this practice of biblical interpretation. Verse 8, it's figurative. Men lift hands. You know what we mean. The way the women dress, oh no, it's not really that. What it means is this. Figurative. Verse 10 is figurative. Verse 11, 12, women, no, that's, that's literal. And then verse 12 about them being saved through childbearing, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> Figurative, 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 literal, figurative is our hermeneutic here. Do you understand what I just said? That uh, okay, um, seven twenty-seven. Okay, um, good because I don't think Alan had something on deck for next Wednesday. So tell him that now he does. Um, I just love walking through the scripture and talking about it and sharing this. So, so what we're going to do now is we're going to, we've kind of, yes, Bill? So, so if it, you know, like 
Yeah. That would be that'd be that'd be aerobic exercise, wouldn't it? So what what's quite interesting, what is quite interesting about our practice of prayer, there are multiple and I got some good Bible students here who can correct me if I'm wrong. There are multiple postures of prayer. There's only one posture of prayer that the Bible does not speak of. And that's the one we the posture we use the most in prayer. And the Bible speaks not of it at all. That's sitting. <laughs> There's nowhere in the Bible that you see a command nor an example of someone seated and praying. Command, inference, and example necessary. The only possibility of that, and you, you guys know the Bible better than I do, but maybe at the Lord's Supper when Jesus is reclining, maybe there is the one time, maybe, uh, but all these other postures and the one we use the most is really not the one that's mentioned. And that, that's, a, that's, a, that's not a strong one there. Okay, well, um, okay. Can you elaborate on the end of that particular verse? Without anger or quarreling. Lifting holy hands without... Lift up holy hands in prayer without angering or disputing. You said elaborate on it. Why? Because it just seems, does that mean that they were lifting their holy hands? Oh, good question. Against each other. Oh, okay. Oh, I thought you meant maybe were they lifting holy hands and and putting on a display of worship when at the same time they were angering and and disputing, quarreling and disputing one. Does is that what it means? There was quarreling and disputing in the church in Ephesus. It was leading people astray. It was causing division. And he says, look, you need to come together and pray. That'll keep you focused on your mission. That'll, that'll create peace within. And it'll be much more difficult for these things to occur with your brother or sister in Christ when you're praying with them. Um, so he's spoken to the church in general. He's spoken to the men. Now, he's going to speak directly to the women. And that's where we'll start next week. Yes, Carl? So you believe in a smaller group setting is a beautiful thing for men and women to pray together. Because it hasn't been our practice, there's a discomfort for many women in there. Like right now, we can have conversation back and forth and share our biblical insights. And even in some women sharing their biblical insights, it could teach me something that's okay. But the minute she starts talking to God in prayer, stop. Yeah. So, lead. Yeah, that yeah, we've talked about that before. Is she can say or express her prayer. Yeah. Um, okay. So we've looked at the larger context of First Timothy. Now we're in chapter two, and we we looked at what was spoken of to the men. We learned some some powerful points about prayer. Um, we haven't even gotten to women should be silent, other than trying to define that word. We're looking at the context. Okay. So next week, he's going to speak to the women. He's going, to, he's going to correct them in the way they're inappropriately dressing. Um, and we have that problem here sometimes, I think. Not strictly as they had it here. Then he's going to call them to be silent. And our goal is to understand that and how to, under, how to interpret that in this larger context. And here's what he's going to do. He's, he's, here's the problem. Here's the solution. And then he's going to give the basis he says, you, 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 you need to be silent, whatever that means, for two reasons. Because Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. That's the first reason, okay? So I want you to come back and tell me what that means. Why is that the basis for what he's for the corrective for the women. And then the second basis is because a woman is saved through childbearing. <laughs> your, goal, your job next week is to answer what in the world. Uh, what about the dress? What about the silence in this context? And then the reason for it is because Adam was formed first, then Eve. Eve was deceived. And then women are saved through childbearing. What do you do with that? Why does he toss that in as the basis for which he makes his point? Keith, and then we'll close. No. 
Can women lift up holy hands? No, because it says men. That's, see, that's, and see, see, I, come, I, was, I wasn't kind of, I was very sarcastic, and Bill picked, picked up on that. How strict do we then move into chapter 3 with the qualifications of elders? Children, not child. And I, I just remember a man who was the most godly man you could meet told me he could not become an elder because he had one child, not children. I'm not disagreeing agreeing. I'm just saying, how do we understand that? And why is it we're strict here, not here, we're here and not here? How do you interpret Scripture? That's a challenge. Let's pray, and um, we'll talk about the women full time next week. Father, thank you for this passage. And tonight we heard from you a call to be a people of prayer. Father, we thank you for the promise that as we pray individually, as we pray collectively, you promise to give us a peace that, I love this, that, that transcends, it goes beyond our comprehension. We pray for that. Move us deeper and stronger and closer to be a people of prayer. And we pray that as we, as we pray, God, keep our focus on, on what's of first importance, on our mission proclaiming Jesus to a lost world. We pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we'll look forward to next Wednesday. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.